0: Well, this episode, right before we started recording this episode, our wonderful guest Rinda brought up this Netflix show that she said reminded her of me and Jason. It's called Midnight at the Magnolia, which didn't sound familiar. So I looked it up and (laughs) I'm just, I'm loving the description. It says, longtime friends and local radio hosts fake it as a Make it as a couple for their families and listeners in hopes of getting their show nationally syndicated.
2: (laughs) Sounds about right. I mean, it also sounds like we're the white stripes of podcasting because that's part of the lore of the origin of the white stripes. You know, being from Detroit, they had this whole image that they were brother and sister, Jack and Meg White, when actually they were married. And so that was a what? whole point. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So this is. I very, didn't
0: know that. 100%. I,
2: thought they, I
0: still to this day thought that they were brother and sister.
2: Nope. Jack White is actually Jack Gillis. And he and Meg White married. They started the White Stripes and he took Meg's last name.
0: Whoa. Wait. So did they purposefully plan to be perceived as brother and sister? Was that like, or did that happen and they just kind of ran with it? And how did that? How does that benefit their music career?
2: I believe it was purposeful, from what I understand. I've met—I actually had the great pleasure, and this also will lead into a lot of conversations with Rinda today about the music industry. But I had the pleasure of meeting and hanging out with Meg White when I was playing in bands in the early aughts and the late nineties in Detroit. And from what I understand, it was sort of a purposeful positioning of their band. And then once it caught on, sort of the media was like, "Wait, are they actually brother and sister?" And then I remember, like, the Detroit Free Press digging into it and going, like, no, actually, we have their marriage records. This is weird.
0: Whoa, this is fascinating. I will also drop one little piece of trivia that when I think of Meg White, I think of the Ray LaMontagne song that he wrote about her, which is one of my favorites of his, because it's so catchy. It's, it's phenomenal. You must know that song, right, Jason?
2: Oh, for sure. Yeah, definitely. I mean, Ray is one of our all-time favorites. and. Using this as a as a segue into our our wonderful guest today, Rinda, who we had the pleasure of meeting back in twenty eighteen at the Wellspring Conference in Palm Strip Springs. And initially, Rinda, you know, we we met you under the umbrella of of mental health and emotional wellness and your absolutely wonderful brand called Very Every Day that we will dig into. But the other layer was we quickly learned our mutual affinity and history in the music industry. And that was like, oh, this woman is my sister she's my (laughs) sister so it's it's a long-awaited thing rinda that we have you here because my god your energy and your knowledge and your wisdom and also holy shit the stories the stories of being in the trenches of the music and entertainment industry like you consistently over the years have blown me away and i've had so many holy shit moments with you so i'm hoping for a lot of holy shit moments on the podcast today no pressure
1: (laughs) i got them i got all kinds (laughs)
2: So I want to dig in, you know, with this overlapping of, you know, kicking this off with with music and entertainment, talking about this Netflix show and the white stripes. And Rinda, you come from a background of, as I mentioned, being really deeply entrenched in the the music business. As I mentioned, so many great stories and wonderful artists you've worked with. And now your coaching and your incredible supplement line of helping people with their mental health and emotional wellness. One thing I'm super curious about because It's been a minute since we've had a chance to connect and and drop in deep. So I kind of feel like we're having a catch up in real time here on the podcast. You know, over the past year plus, I think, you know, artists in general, touring musicians struggle with mental health and isolation and loneliness and a lot of different things that you're a lot more well-versed than I am. But with COVID and the quarantine and people's tours getting canceled and their album releases getting delayed. What kind of things have you seen in the music and entertainment industry firsthand or through good friends of yours? And and how the hell are artists coping with this, this shitstorm that we find ourselves in?
1: That's a really good question. And first of all, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to just get to know you guys again right here on the podcast. I think that... It really depends on where you are as an artist on how it has affected you. You know, some of my clients were like, okay, the entire tour got scheduled. My record got derailed. I had to cancel everything. My bars are closed. What am I going to do? Okay, cool. I'm going to go and make a new record. And that's what Greg Dooley from the Afghan Wigs did. And so for him, it's just like, all right, let's go create. And for another one of my clients, Jesse Dayton, kind of the same thing, although he like completely made his living off touring. Although we did get him a book deal last year to write his memoir. And, but he's also had to diversify and like, you really have to go like, okay, what else beyond the live space can I do to create income and still create? And so I think that's really what people have been grappled, you know, the the industry itself has been grappled with is how to to keep creating and then also monetize it. And then as far as mental health goes, I mean, you know, the, the toll of the last year from COVID and also the political climate, no matter what your feelings are about it, have taken a really hard toll on all of us. So it was definitely a rough year, but I feel like everybody's starting to feel like, a light at the end of the tunnel, so to speak, this year. So I think I answered all your questions.
2: <laughs> yeah, for sure. I, I, it's just been a curiosity because so many friends of mine who were, you know, depending on tour money, I mean, ourselves included, you know, one of the reasons we met obviously was I had a speaking appearance at the Wellspring conference where we met yourself and, and me and Whitney, Rinda. And, you know, it was also a massive pivot because every single year, I rely on a pretty significant portion of my income from doing live speaking appearances. And and it was sort of a, a holy shit moment. What am I going to do to replace this income? And a lot of musician friends who are also relying on tour income because they don't necessarily get that many royalties from, you know, selling albums or, or certainly not from streaming on Spotify or Tidal or Apple Music. You know, it's pennies for them. It's been really interesting to see how a lot of friends have shifted into things like, say, vocal coaching. Or one friend of mine started to teach cooking classes because she wasn't on tour. Or myself, I actually I actually started out of nowhere teaching guitar lessons, which was like, okay, we're just going to go with this. And I think it's just been interesting to, to watch people get super creative and and from just a survival standpoint, figure out how to manage all of this. But it's also been really tough to see you know, how many – certainly nobody directly in my life, but the rate of suicide and depression – and we actually did an episode recently, Rinda, where Whitney was talking about, and I want you to talk more about this wit. Whitney's been doing a lot of great content on TikTok recently, and she sort of unwittingly stumbled into this space of non-alcoholic spirits and drinks and how many people are wanting cocktail alternatives because they're sober. And it's in that episode, we actually found out that binge drinking has seen a massive uptick this last year, and in particularly women. And I'm curious, Rinda, you know, because you do have a background in sober living and in helping people to you know recover from alcoholism and addiction, has that been something that's been brought up to you by friends or clients? Or have you seen personally an uptick in people in your life battling addiction or falling off the wagon of sobriety during this past year?
1: No, I, I actually haven't. Well, I do know that it's been really hard for some people. And I have heard friends of friends who have not made it through this due to that of ODing or, um, suicide. So yeah, but no one in my life personally, there is a huge, massive movement and way before this for sober spirits. I have a lot of friends that create, yeah, I mean, um, Laura Silverman who you met with us in Austin at South by Southwest. She has the We Are Sober handle and she's and they do all kinds of stuff about sober spirits and you know there's the sober bar movement that we also went to in in South by Southwest. You know, for me, I don't know. I've been sober 28 years. So just to back up a little bit, you know, I've been sober clean and sober from drugs and alcohol for 28 and a half years now. And so for me, it's like such a, such a. it's just a way of life for me. Like it doesn't, it's not right in my face anymore. So, uh, but I still see a lot of it. And then I sort of transitioned and I've been clinical depression-free now for five years. And so I, I, try, I see where like mental health and depression and the two of those go hand in hand with alcohol addiction and drug addiction. And so, you know, yeah, it's, just, it's, just, it's been hard for a lot of people. The isolation's been hard, you know, in the 12-step community, doing Zoom meetings has been hard. I mean, look, this whole pandemic and life has been hard on everybody, and we're not all in the same boat. Like, you keep see, hearing this, like, we're all in the same boat. Well, actually, we're not. We're in the same like ocean in the middle of the same storm, but some of us are in life rafts and some of us are in yachts. And so, you know, it's, it's just been really interesting to watch how different people are being able to cope or to advise or to help or to be of service to different people and how they're coping. Like for me, I'm, I'm spent a lot of time alone, which is fine. And then you have other people that have families that it's like they're with their, 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 homeschooling and then you have the artists that now have to, you know, recreate their lives or us that have to recreate our income streams. I mean, this has in a way been like almost a cocooning, I think, for good or bad. That the cocooning and and hopefully what will happen is we will come out the other side of this with, you know, as
0: butterflies <laughs> as pretty beautiful butterflies. <laughs> it's interesting you bring that up because my perspective on this time have just continuously shift. And and perhaps life is always like that, right? Like it's not a, a stable experience. And it's interesting to be at the beginning of a new year at the time of we're re- recording. But what's interesting is this episode is coming out around the year mark of the pandemic when it started to impact the entire world. And, you know, in the U.S., it was about mid-March 2020 when things started to get really serious and we we had quarantine and, and mask wearing and all that stuff was starting to develop. At this moment we're recording in January and and looking at like going into this new year and reflecting on what 2020 was like. And I think what's shifted a lot for me is not no longer looking at covid as as this short-term thing that's going to go away, but more of Either it's going to be a long time before it ever feels like it's going away, or maybe it never really does and it dissipates. But what's left behind is the transformation that's happened for us as a country and as the world and all of these lessons and the cocooning, as you're mentioning, like has happened in a major way collectively, which I think is really interesting because we as individuals will go through various forms of transformation based on highs and lows of our lives. And then every once in a while, things happen to us as a nation or as 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 the earth collectively together. And I feel like it has such a, a different impact. It's like on one side, we're all in this together. But to your point, Rinda, like, people are experiencing this in radically different ways. And I'm so glad that you pointed that out because to assume that we all understand one another is, is not necessarily the truth because people experience different things based on so many different factors of who they are and what stage they are in and what their background is and what resources they have. And I've noticed an increased sensitivity to that. Like, I want people to feel included, but also I have to recognize that we're not all able to be included because of all these different factors that you're mentioning.
1: Yeah, it's definitely different for everybody. You know, it, it just, it's, it really is. And I mean, I think, well, you know, some of us are doubling down on our personal growth and having to sit still after running around the, around the world and attending events and doing all this stuff. And and we're having to sit still. And, and then, you know, some people don't have food on their table. Like this is no joke, you know, like the economic crisis that's going, that's, that's happening and the mental health and, you know, people that don't have food and, and, you know, the homelessness issue or people experiencing homelessness is, is higher. It's just, it's, this is serious, you know, and, so I don't know it's it's hard to balance out because what I try not to do is like compare myself to others good or bad like you know I'm lucky I've had income I've had I've been able to pivot I've been resourceful you know I have my company and I have my my consulting company that's good And and I still go through depressions or down times about it. And I, I can own those feelings and still really acknowledge that there are other people that have it way worse than all of us, you know, and then there are people that it's not hurting at all. And then there's, you know, the, the millionaires that have made gazillions of dollars off of it. So it's just, it's all over the place. And we just have to have to acknowledge that, I think, for us to all heal. Yeah. But to your point, that we're gonna we're gonna this is January. We just had a new administration take over. We have different, you know, we have vaccines coming. It's gonna get worse before it gets better as far as COVID. But by the time this airs, I'm I'm hopeful that we're gonna start to sort of get become get out of this this state and you know i do think that we'll thrive in in really different ways after this and that's what i'm looking forward to i'm looking forward to march <laughs> definitely so
2: i'm curious in talking about transformation rinda because whitney brought it up and and you have certainly had so many different i suppose let's say versions of yourself over the course of your life you know knowing a little bit about your, your life story, which I'm really excited for you to share tidbits of whatever you want to share here on the episode. But also that, you know, transformation, I feel like can have so many components to it. We've had some episodes that we've talked about the idea of willpower and what is willpower? Does it even exist? We've talked a lot about shame and guilt. And so if we rewind a little bit and we go back to 28 years ago, 28 and a half years ago, when you decided to. You know, adopt this sober lifestyle and maintain it for almost three decades now, what were the mental and neurobiological components? I mean, certainly 28 and a half years ago, I think the conversation around neurobiology and behavioral shifts and cognitive dissonance and some of these things we may may think of as buzzwords in the transformational community were perhaps not talked about as much. But back then, what was that like for you? Was it about cultivating more willpower? Was it your proverbial rock bottom? Was it, um, leveraging, you know, feelings of shame or guilt and saying, I can't do this anymore. I'm curious about what was that mental process like and how the hell did you do that for yourself? So if you could take us into the details of that, I think it would be really fascinating just to, to break down how you did it and, and also, you know, how you've maintained it for almost three decades.
1: Wow. Three decades. That's, (laughs) that's awesome. Yeah, let me just go back a ways here for a second. You know, I was born in San Francisco nine months after the summer of love. I always like to joke. And, you know, my mom took me to see Jim Morrison in her womb, which to me just explains everything about me. I think as a teenager, I didn't know how to deal with my emotions, my emotional state. And so when alcohol and drugs got introduced into the picture, they were a solution to change the way I was feeling. So, if I wanted to feel more confident, you know, that like confidence at the bottom of a bottle is a real thing. Or if I wanted to, you know, feel brighter or more exuberant, you know, speedy drugs were the answer for me. And later, when I wanted to shut it all down and not feel at all, opiates were a solution for me. And so I you know, moved to Southern California. And then in my, when I was 22, I up and moved to New York City. And I got a, my first job in the record industry, actually in Los Angeles. And then when I moved to New York, I got my second job in the record industry. And these are important because you're talking about, you know, what state of mind I was in when I made this transformation. So here I am in an industry, the music industry, a young a&R Girl, which A&R is Artisan Repertoire. So it was my job, along with my bosses, to go look at new talent. So I was out scouting talent in the 89 through 90, well, all the way through the 90s, but we're specifically talking about recovery here. And I fell into, you know, I was drinking every day and I fell into an opiate addiction. I was, I was actually doing heroin, which was kind of normal for the music business in the early 90s. But when you're doing that, you can't fool yourself anymore. So as my addiction developed, even though there was some sense of normalcy or allowing that to happen because of the industry I was in, my self-esteem and my self-worth and my emotional state just became worse and worse and worse and worse. And I hit what, what we call an emotional bottom. And... I was using. I was using every single day at this point, and I knew that there was no fooling myself anymore. Because when you're using heroin, you cannot fool yourself. And I basically hit a series of bottoms emotionally. Where I reached out for help, and then the last time when I, I reached out to help, I called a detox center, and you know, it was just it again. I hadn't passed any of these. It was an emotional bottom. It was like, I can't, I just can't do this anymore. I just can't do it anymore. And I had this moment of hope and I reached out for help. And the man that answered the phone said to me, it's time for you to surrender. And, you know, I didn't really know what that meant, but I I checked into detox the next day. And that really began my journey with the 12 steps and recovery and understanding what surrender means, understanding what willpower means, understanding that when you're in active addiction or in active depression, actually, willpower is meaningless. It doesn't exist when you're in that active state. And so... Yeah. I just, I began the journey. I was lucky enough to stay in the music business and I moved back to Los Angeles and, you know, was surrounded with my family and my friends and I started on the path to recovery. Yeah. That's the deep down and dirty part of that.
2: (laughs) Wow. No, I just appreciate you sharing so, so openly and viscerally Rinda. And you mentioned willpower doesn't really work when you're at that point. So if, in this process of surrender, because I'm really curious, especially in this context, but also generally speaking, what surrender means to you and how that, how that shows up in your life. But when you said willpower didn't work, I feel like that goes against a lot of the, I don't know, common rhetoric we see in society of just like, you know, just push through and just, you know, conquer this thing and and use your will to overcome whatever it is. But in this state, you're saying that's not going to work. So I'm curious, you know, instead of willpower, what touchstones or aspects of that recovery were you able to leverage? But beyond that, you know, dig into surrender a little bit more. I want I want to know a little bit more about your perspective on that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's the biggest myth about specifically addiction or substance use disorder, which I don't, whatever, it's addiction. So the biggest myths are that addiction, you can just control it. And I I believe the same with depression and anxiety, you know, snap out of it, you know, choose to be happy, stuff like that. And again, I think once you're, once you got a little time under your belt, either you're, you've been abstinence from recovery, or you've been, you know, really tackling your mental health issues, and you have a little time, I think you do have more choices. Just to be clear, I think eventually you get those, some of those choices back and you're able to like take some of that power back. But at the beginning, in active addiction or an active depression, you don't have that choice. It's literally not a choice. Like, I don't, I mean, I'm just going to get real and visceral again. You know, it's like, I would wake up in the morning or I would go to sleep on at Friday night after working and be like, I'm not going to use this weekend. I'm just not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. And I would want with every cell in my body to not do it. And five hours later, I'd be down at second A copping dope. Like it's not willpower. It's just not. Well, once you hit that surrender point that I did when I called the rehab, or when you do when you are in active depression and you're finally like pick up the phone and call someone and say like, I'm not okay. Once you do that, something shifts because you're not trying to control it. You're not trying to be all powerful. You're actually handing that power over to someone else or something else and asking for help. And therefore it gives you hope. And therefore you are relieved of that Obsession, you know, and you're you're sort of like, well, it's not that you're relieved of is that let me rephrase that. It's like once you've surrendered, there's this sense of relief that someone else is in control and can guide you. Eventually, what you want to do is have enough support systems where you can have other people guide you through it until you can support yourself again. Once you've sort of gotten there and you've got a little bit of time under your belt or a little bit of recovery, then you can trust yourself a little bit better and then you get some of your power back. Does that make sense?
2: Yeah, it does. And, you know, I've heard that that other power could be a mentor. It could be your relationship to God. It could be, you mentioned the 12 steps. And so when, when you talk about this power other than yourself, what was that for you? What was that other power?
1: So the beginning was definitely the 12 steps. I mean, I, it it without question the 12 steps for the first 5 years of my recovery specifically helped guide that for me. Now, when you're working the 12 steps, one the guidance is like find a power greater than yourself. So for me I I automatically sort of went into this You know, what is God? Why are there starving children and why are there disease? And how would God, you know, like I got really intellectual about it because that's who I am as a person. (laughs) But, you know, for me, I came out with, you know, this quantum physics universal love, higher power that really worked for me. And it made it made the most sense logically, as far as like why we're here. And if if you just tap into The power that's positive and not tapping into the negative, then you have more hope and it keeps going. And that's the same, I think with like changing your behaviors, it's the same concept, right? When you're, when you want to change your behavior, you don't want to, whether it's addiction, depression, whether it's just exercise or like lifestyle, any kind of lifestyle changes, you have to tap into the positive things and keep reinforcing those and then creating the new new neuropathways. And of course, then we get into, you know, cognitive changes and cognitive therapy and neuroplasticity and all those wonderful things that I love to talk about. But at the very beginning, the idea is just really like trying to walk this new path long enough so that you create a new pathway. Yeah.
2: <laughs> you touch on some of the science, I'll call it science geekery that that we love to dig into here and I'm glad you you brought that up Rinda. I think you know one thing that I was reticent in my own mental health journey at the very beginning. There was a lot of there was a lot of things that I think delayed me from seeking help in my in my own life, you know, around I mean one of the things you and I bonded over when we met was, you know, me talking about my own clinical depression and suicidal ideation and anxiety and some of the things we've mentioned already here. But, you know, my reticence when I was younger was, you know, I I didn't know that I suppose holistic, let's put it under that umbrella for lack of a better word, but I think it's an apt word, you know, holistic mental health and emotional wellness solutions or therapies existed because the only experience that I had, had from observing some people in my family going through. Their own mental health struggles was pharmaceuticals and talk therapy. And I thought, that's, you know, is that the only two options out there? And I'm not throwing pharmaceuticals or talk therapy under the bus with that comment, but I think my resistance to seeking help and telling my friends and family that I was struggling was I thought it was this automatic thing of, okay, you're going to be put in a 5150, you're going to get put on SSRIs, you're going to have to sit on a black leather couch and just talk to someone about your feelings. And my initial reaction was like, ah, there's got to be some other options here. So with, with that as kind of a framework, I'm curious how you got into your, I suppose, therapy or healing cycles around, you know, your mental health and your depression. And of course it led you to creating this wonderful company that I've been blessed with taking your supplements for many years now, but I'm wondering as you were kind of uncorking this, were you faced with kind of a similar thing of just like, ah, oh, just take a pharmaceutical and go talk to someone. And it's like, uh, oh. how did you get into the more holistic side of things? And what was that discovery process like for you?
1: Yeah. I love talking about this and, and it's really important. So the other thing in that is like, you have S you have medications, you have talk therapy, or you have, and, and in the recovery world, you have like 12 step program. And one of the things that used to make me drive me crazy and still does to this very day is like, if you were struggling, it's like, okay, well then you weren't calling your sponsor enough, or you weren't doing your program, right? Like you, you didn't work the steps, right. Or you, you know, just go to more meetings, just help other people. And it's like, as I was doing those things, I was doing 12 step work. I was doing the best I could with all that. I was trying to do everything and I was still miserable. And, you know, yeah. Doctors put me on SSRIs. Um, I made a decision after two and a half years of sobriety. I was still struggling with my mental health, and when Kurt Cobain shot himself, honestly, it really, really triggered me. If we go back, I'm sure we'll talk about my crazy music business later. But you know, I saw Nirvana before they were signed, so to me, those were all there were. There was a lot of music music people that. I worked with that went on to become very famous, and I saw them as as almost like peers in a way, even though they went on to be anyway. So, Kurt Cobain, when he committed suicide, it affected me really greatly, and so I decided to get on pharmaceuticals, and then so I did that for a long time, but that didn't work either. Honestly, Jason, like pharmaceuticals didn't work, twelve step didn't work. I mean, it all worked a little bit, but I still had so much dece- disease, and so I really started, which is just in my nature. Investigating, like, what else is there? Well, what, how does this SSRI work? Well, why did, well, Butrin work better for me than Prozac, which didn't work for me? Oh, because it worked on dopamine. Well, what is dopamine? Well, what does that mean? And I like just investigated and dug in and read tons and tons of books. And like, there was a couple of pivotal books, um, Julia Ross's The Mood Cure which talks about amino acid therapy and uh, Dr. Hyla Kass called Natural Highs, also about like amino acid therapy and like all these natural versions. And I just, I was blown away as I investigated more and more like, well, wait, you know, thyroid issues can cause depression. Low vitamin D can cause depression. Like, what is it? And then, so I just like became this big sponge of all this, all this knowledge and information. And so then I went on my own inner journey and made a choice after almost 20 years on antidepressants and doing all the modalities. I had an experience where I got to live out here in Joshua Tree. I live in Joshua Tree now, but at the time I didn't. And I I came out here and was house sitting and I made a decision shortly before that to lower my medications and to try these natural solutions. And I was able to get off my medications and I did it all with natural, you know, natural solutions. And so I was like, it was such a wow moment. I was like, well, I don't want everybody to have to go through what I just went through of 10 years of learning to do this. And so I want to bring this back out to people in a really, really simple way. And that's when I launched, I started Vary and i started with the five supplements that you know do the most for mental health but the the real goal with very is to expand it into education and and coaching so that you know people that need more help besides the supplements that can come and like get more information sort of downloading the information. And that's why I do these podcasts. And that's why I do talks. And like, you know, you and I, Jason did South by Southwest. And that's why I go and and do these things so that I can bring the information back to people so that they know that it's out there. Because when I started looking for it in, you know, 2000 or 2002, it was definitely not there. And thank goodness, it's starting to be more and more there so that there's opportunities for people to understand a a holistic natural solution based remedies you know and to that end still people are better at talking about yoga and mindful meditation and and all of that and that's really really important but we still haven't d- like gotten into the things that I think you and I bond on, Jason, the most is, is nutrition, like f- mood food, right, and supplementation. It's just not at the level it should be yet, but it will be.
2: <laughs> I think it's interesting. Whitney and I have a couple of really great friends that hopefully we'll have here on the podcast who are, are clinicians, they're psychotherapists, and I was having a conversation with one of them. Her name is Ariana and uh, she lives in Philadelphia. And we were discussing that, you know, nutrition for mental health, at least in her field. And I I think her background is in uh, the Hakomi therapy, that style of, of psychotherapy. And she was saying that even with her clients and her sort of system of psychotherapy that she studied, and even with her colleagues, that nutrition and food, even now in 2021, is still not something that's discussed. And It's not something that is being talked about as a link to anxiety, depression, suicidal ideation, et cetera. And moreover, you know, the the thing that I get excited about is not just maybe cracking open this idea of talking about more of the the links about nutrition, which I definitely want to talk maybe more details about because you mentioned dopamine and serotonin and neurotransmitters, but how certain states right now are approving psilocybin and entheogens. These are psychedelic natural solutions. Psilocybin is a psychedelic mushroom. And that states like Oregon are making them legal to be used in therapeutic settings, along with things like MDMA. And I'm encouraged to see the expansion of sort of the mental health field beyond, I don't know, some of the traditional things that have been clung to for so long, and now seeing, okay, we're going to talk about nutrition, even though it's not being talked about. We're going to talk about expanding this into somatic experiencing. We're going to talk about the role of psychedelics in mental healing. And I feel like it's sort of like the Wild West right now in, in some ways, because there's still not mass adoption of these type of therapies. But I, I think I'm curious where sometimes I feel like Whitney and I have discussed like, you know, we're not on this podcast or in our coaching, we're not licensed psychotherapists, We're not licensed nutritionists, but we do have years of research and knowledge in our own personal experience. So I don't know if I have a question in here per se, other than, you know, laying it out to both of you of these bold new frontiers of exploration where people are like, oh, well, nutrition doesn't have an effect on your mental health. And, and psychedelics are for hippies and Burning Man people like we're not going to take those. It just seems there's a lot of resistance to any kind of new therapies that are introduced in this field. Do you, does that something that comes up? Do you see a lot of resistance with that? Like people being like, no, 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 no. This isn't, this isn't something that actually works.
1: Well, I would just want to step back for a second and say that I'm really excited about all the different therapies out there, but there's nothing new about nutrition. Like nutrition should be the base before anything else. You know what I mean? It's like, You have to eat, you have to sleep, you have to breathe and you have to drink water. Like eating and nutrition should be the base for all of it. You know what I mean? And then, yes, if it's still like that, you have to have that base. Then you add yoga, then you add mindfulness, then you add psychedelics. But if you, I'm sorry, but if, if you go do psychedelics with a therapist and you have MTHFR gene mutation and your vitamin D isn't working or your, you know, methylfolate's off, if your biochemistry's off, you're going to add another layer of biochemistry through. CBD, THC or psychedelics, I don't think that's a very good idea. So I would say that all of those things should be done after you've had a really good chat with a good nutritionist and a functional medicine doctor so that you've gotten your levels checked and you've gotten those things checked and you've gotten that balanced. If you're still not feeling great and you want to explore some of these other options, I think that's more power to you. Awesome, that's what I feel about that. Because I feel like some of these things are dangerous if you, if you, they're not done with the right setting, and they're not done when you're not looking at some of these other things first. <laughs> Opinionated, wasn't I?
2: <laughs> no, it's good. It's good to talk about this. And and one thing I want to loop back to a little bit, Rindo. We talk about shame a lot here. It's something that Whitney has brought up and and I brought up in previous episodes. And the role of, of shame in addiction, the role of shame in behavior change. You know, I we have a, a guest here on the podcast. His name was Nick Jaworski, and he talked a lot about shame, how in certain contexts it can actually be useful for behavior correction and behavioral change. Whereas I think in our culture, we've talked about how shame can automatically just be a negative thing in every single context. Like we shouldn't shame people. We shouldn't shame ourselves. But I think in opening this conversation around around addiction, since we've talked about it in previous episodes, is there a benefit to feeling ashamed of, I suppose, our actions in this context when we're talking about mental health or addiction or healing from it? Or is it not necessarily a good thing in terms of behavioral change with all of this?
1: Oh, you guys, you have good questions. So I differentiate really strongly between those that are in active addiction or active, what I, you know, or like active depression or active, active mental states that are in, you know, where it's, it's like that is different. You're, there's no way you can't feel shame in those, uh, when you're in active addiction and you're in clinical depression you as a human, you feel shame there because there's a point where you don't, you know, you can't get out of it. You're struggling to get out of it. You know, you, you feel shameful because you just should feel better, or you've got the moral things that everybody put on you is like, you know, I'm awful because I'm an addict like that, that, you know, I'm a piece of shit because I'm an addict. And, and like that, that those moral issues that have been placed upon us. That's why like the recovery community and the mental health community has tried so hard to smash the stigma, like the stigma of, and, and shame involved in that. And when you're in active addiction and active depression, I think that you can somehow you utilize that and, and like use that as a power towards freedom because you, you're struggling to get out of active, active addiction. And I think as you get out of active addiction, some of that shame can, can dissipates because you're not in that active state. So I think in that case, it can be used as a positive. I I've never thought about it this before. This is, I'm sort of speaking on the fly here. I haven't really gone deep on this before now. Shame in you know, when you're, you've got, you've got your life together or you're, you're going along and you're in recovery or you're, 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 you know, feeling better in your mental states, but you're still not feeling great. Then I don't, I don't know where shame is. Then I think it can be detrimental. And that's when it's time to like dig deep and look at what are you shameful about and how can you, you know, do some cognitive therapy about it around like, you know, places that make you feel shameful and do some, you know, making sure that like some of the, some of the reasons that you did have active addiction or if the depression, if there's some trauma that you have to look at and other things like that. And I don't think shame's useful in that point. I think it's, unless it's almost activating you to try and feel better. Does that make sense?
2: Yeah. It's, it's interesting to think about shame in the sense of wanting to be more proactive with making changes in your life. And and I think context is important. And in terms of context, I I wanted to loop back to something we we briefly mentioned at the beginning of the episode in terms of sobriety, Rinda, because I think that shame sometimes bleeds into some of the peer pressure that we face. You know, I mentioned that Whitney had put out some TikTok videos around non-alcoholic drinks. And some of the comments that were popping up that she was sharing with me were really fascinating in terms of people may be discussing some of the things that they go through as, as a sober person trying to relate in social context to people that aren't sober. And it's made me kind of reflect on life situations where I, I'm i not 100% sober, but I, I rarely, rarely drink. And I remember so vividly situations where I would be out at a bar or even you know playing a show as a musician and not wanting to drink alcohol and feeling the peer pressure and, and almost like, I I don't know if shame is the right word around peer pressure. Peer pressure is like a very interesting thing where I, I felt like people wanted me to drink so they could feel more connected to me or more comfortable with their choice. But I remember vividly a lot of situations, you know, where where people are like, are you sure you don't want it's on me? It's on me. I'll get it. No, no, no. Just have, dude, just have one. Just have one. Come on, bro. We got You know, we got to, we got to celebrate. We got to do this. And, and sort of Whitney's journey through TikTok of all these comments that have been coming up in her videos. And then this conversation brought back a lot of those memories, like right now in real time of reviewing the peer pressure I felt in my life to either drink or do drugs with people. And the psychology of why of why peer pressure exists in those contexts. It's really interesting.
1: Yeah, I would say two things. One is the first year that I got sober, I, there were a couple times when people were like, well, I just have a drink. Why not? Why well, just have a drink? And I'm like, because I'm sober. And I have I might be an exception to the rule, but for me at that point, I'm like, I don't give a fuck what you think about me. I am sober. I am going to die if I drink. So to me I didn't have a problem with that. <laughs> like I still don't. I'm like, nope, mm, you know? And I ended up working in the music business early sobriety and my job was to go to bars five nights a week and watch bands. You know? And I basically was like, luckily there were enough sober people around me that I had that support where you know, there were, I, I latched on to a lot of sober bands, uh, Cadillac Tramps. I ended up working with them. They were all sober. The guys in Social Distortion were all sober. I moved to Los Angeles and a lot of the LA, a community, they were sober. And so what I would say with people that do have that feeling of like insecurity around that is to surround yourself with people and take buddies with you. You know, and just, I think it's okay to, at this point, to just own it. You know, I remember when someone, the first time someone brought drugs out in front of me and I, yeah, I was a little shaky, but I was like, nope, that will kill me. It's not worth it. I don't care what you think about me. And I removed myself from the situation, you know, and so, and to be fair, I also want to share that I've also never been one of those people that thinks everybody that drinks has a problem. You know, I have no problem going out and hanging out with my friends that are drinking. Like I can go, you know, there's a certain time of night where I'm like, all right, everybody's past my level of like, you know, they're not going to remember this in the morning. I'm out of here. But I don't think that, you know, everybody that, that drinks has to, you know, or drinks a lot is, needs to get sober. So I might be an exception to the rule in this case. I do know a lot of people struggle with that. I do know a lot of people struggle with peer pressure, and they struggle with like, well, what I say at the office party. And I say like, get a mojito without alcohol and call it a day. Like, and again, I don't mean to downplay people's experience because I I do know that it exists, and it's it's. I've been made very aware of it by my friends in the in the sober community that I'm friends with that have a lot of trouble with that. So. But I would say take a buddy with you and that's when you own your power. That's when you can own your power. When you're not in active addiction, you're not in active depression, you're in a situation and you can own your power and say,
0: nope, not for me today. And it's interesting because similar to Jason, I'm not sober because I drink from time to time. But I'm sober, curious, which is a term that I've been seeing pop up more and more often, and I'm I'm reevaluating my relationship to alcohol and even drugs. I suppose I, I've never really been into to recreational drugs, you know. And I it's different though because I don't experience addiction with either of those, so I feel like I can't fully relate to what it's like to be addicted. Like I I, I don't feel that addiction plays much of a role in my life. And I haven't been around a lot of people that I know, I mean, that I can think of that have struggled with addiction. And I think that's an important realization because we can't assume, as I was saying earlier, that like our personal experiences are the same thing that somebody else experiences. And I think that's exactly where this peer pressure or bullying comes into play. It's like somebody else is trying to put on you their way of living they're trying to say like hey why don't you do what i do like the way i'm doing it is the right way or the way that i'm doing it is great like you should try it and we just put this this weight on another other people because we want them to behave in the same way that we are and maybe that's about inclusivity i think sometimes on the peer pressure side the person putting on the pressure might not want to feel alone. So they're like, oh, let me try to get as many people to to do the things that I'm doing so that I don't feel like I'm the outcast or I don't feel bad about my decisions. And that's something I can actually relate to. I'm not aware of being a major... like. I wouldn't call myself a bully. I wouldn't say that I peer pressure and like the kind of cliche way, but I definitely feel like I've exhibited those behaviors of trying to convince someone to do something that I want to do because I don't want to do it alone. And taking ownership of that and then realizing like, first of all, I I don't want to go about life trying to control and manage others. And I've noticed that I have a tendency to do those things. And that tendency helps me better understand why people might put on that pressure. I might try to bully or, or say things. And I've noticed this as Jason was saying in like the comment sections online. And it's fascinating to me. And I, I think it's just coming out of ignorance or lack of awareness from these people that that don't want to accept somebody for living a, a life differently than them. And I, I think what's really neat, to your point, Rinda, it's like, it's so cool that there is a growing movement of Sober options so that somebody like yourself and, and, and us too, on occasion, who wants to go to a party or a bar or a restaurant, you know, back when socializing happens more frequently events, for example, that are often filled with alcohol, perhaps we want something different than water or soda, and it's so exciting to see that there are now non-alcoholic spirits, non-alcoholic wine and beer and, and mocktails and all of these wonderful things. Or if it's not quite so obvious, remembering that you could ask the bartender to just not put alcohol in a drink like a mojito and you get to still enjoy that experience and the appearance of a drink without it containing something that doesn't suit your lifestyle or your needs.
1: Yeah, absolutely. The company I want you guys to check out is called Zero Proof Nation and they cover all the like sober, sober free. I mean, the spirit free drinks. Uh, That's kind of their jam. So it's called Zero Proof Nation and they've got a cool Instagram that you can look and it's got all kinds of things. I just want to say that before I forgot about it. But Whitney, I just want to say like, one of the things that's incredible in my 28 years of recovery, right? For me, as I've made cl- very, very clear, it's a life or death situation for me. And, you know, my first 20 years was all about 12 step work because that's all that you really had. And then, of course, I branched out into all these different modalities. And what's really, really, really exciting about the recovery um, space now is that not only has it got multiple pathways, is it does have Sober Curious. It does have the, you know, which I, I always, I think that's great. I think Sober Curious is like, you know, it it sort of trickles into wellness. And it's like, yeah, I don't feel good when I drink too much. And I want to change that. And that to me is like such a great thing that a part of this movement that you don't have to, you know, go to the links that I did and then do it all. So, I mean, I think it's amazing that people are, are, embracing that. And there's all these multiple pathways. Now there's multiple pathways for abstinence based recovery too, not just sober curious and everybody's learning to support each other. And I think that's, you know, really, really important and fantastic. And that goes back to the sort of like live and let live and own your own power and your own truth and not try and bully anyone into doing anything that's not you know their jam it's like that's just you know that's kind of just how we should be like that's what we should all strive to be that way you know in in all areas i think so yeah i really like the sober the sober movement in general also the idea that more and more people are recovering out loud they're owning a, you know they're it used to be so secretive it's like oh I'm going to toast, you know, and now it's like, yeah, I'm sober. I'm sober 28 years. I'm on a podcast talking about it because I'm going to not going to be ashamed about it. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to smash the stigma. And at some point, maybe I'll help somebody and maybe I'll help somebody that has real bad drug addiction problems. And maybe you'll help somebody today that has, you know, you know, I'm sober curious. I don't really want to drink that way anymore. And that's what's so great about the opening up of this movement.
2: I'm curious, Winda, like to get into maybe some of the mm. the deeper psychological aspects of artists and entertainers and and people who make their living touring and performing and entertaining others. One thing that that we've talked about is sort of this. I'm not even sure how to call it. This very kind of twisted mentality we have in society where we we encourage people to hustle and grind and live their dreams and and get to these states of living the life that they want and being successful and being rich and all of these things. But then when we find out they're struggling or they come up publicly, as you said, there's this more public conversation around sobriety and mental health and depression and anxiety. And I'm certainly bolstered by the fact that a lot more celebrities and pro athletes and public figures have been publicly talking about this. But then as Whitney said about the comment section, you know, I dig into some of these posts about people's reactions to these celebrities, athletes, leaders, artists coming out with their struggles. And so many so many of the comments are supportive, saying thank you for this, like I've been struggling to, thank you for speaking to this. But on the other side, sort of this, for lack of a better word, schizophrenic reaction is, Oh, what do you have to be depressed about? Why are you addicted? You have everything. You're a millionaire. You tour the world. Everyone knows who you are. What do you have to be sad and depressed and addicted about? Like what you know, it's it's almost like we don't allow people, once they reach a certain level of fame, influence, success, or celebrity to have a human experience anymore. And I'm I'm super interested in your work being in the music industry so long and obviously still having really solid friendships with many great musicians and entertainers. Like, what is that about? It's like, on the one hand, yeah, keep hustling, grinding, go for success. We celebrate you, but don't be too human and don't show us your flaws because you have no reason to be sad and depressed.
1: Yeah, that's a good question, right? So I think the conversation, I think the conversation around that changed drastically in 2018 with the death of Anthony Bourdain, Kate Spade, Chris Cornell, and Chester Bennington. I think those were all in 2018 or within the like within that year, maybe 2017, 2018. And I think that conversation on a broader scale changed because people understood it. I think people started to come out more and more about it during that time. And I think people started to be more vocal about it in the hopes that they would help people. Now, as far as someone coming out and talking about their depression and having the yay, yay, yays and the naysayers. I mean, the reality is that's going to be with everything. I mean, people are just so damn opinionated on social media now and everybody, you know, has to say something all the time. And to me, I would just say like, the more that these well-known people come out and talk about it, the more they have the ability to help those people that are feeling that way. And the more, if we just focus on the, those people that they are helping, hopefully even the naysayers will get it at some point that it's, that's the point. It's not about fame. It's not about money. It's like, yeah. Is it, you know, do you have, you have more opportunity to get, get well, So to speak, when you have money, yes, you do. It's one of the things why I keep very at a, my supplements at a very low rate and why I think that, you know, we need to make sure that wellness is good, is, is not so damn expensive for everybody. But that's a whole other topic we can talk about in a little bit. But as far as like musicians and celebrities and people coming out about mental health, it's like, If they let the naysayers control the conversation, then we're not going to change the stigma in the first place. And so I'm really, I'm so happy when they do come out and talk about it. It's really important so that if it's like that one person that it helps them, you know, that one person that it changes their life, that they heard that that happened or that someone's being honest about it, you know? I think people want a little bit of mystery with their celebrities and their musicians, but I also think that that's changing because of the role of social media. And now it's sort of more like they want a piece of you constantly all the time and they are expecting you to put out content and give you a piece every time. So, you know, they're going to engage in the way that they engage and that's just going to be the way it is. So... I just, I want, I want to encourage more and more people to come out of all celebrities, non-celebrities, everybody, and be honest and open about it. I think it's important.
2: Yeah. And I love that you touched on the subject of making wellness affordable and more accessible because I think one of the knocks and and it's with merit is that things like organic biodynamic food or superfoods or spin classes, yoga, Pilates, meditation, et cetera, et cetera, is that it seems to be catered toward people that have the privilege and the wealth and the disposable income to be able to engage in those things. And that oppressed communities, people of color, people who are not in an economic bracket to take advantage of those healing modalities are in in many, many cases in many metro areas left out in the cold. And, you know, and sometimes literally, and I think it's interesting to to uncork this because, you know, it, it's like, why are holistic solutions and wellness modalities, it seems that it's just this accepted thing that they are quote, and I know this is subjective, expensive is subjective, absolutely to each individual person, but you bring up a really good point, Rinda. And it's something that, you know, Whitney have, and I have kind of observed after, you know, working and being in this collective industry for, you know, well more than a decade is it seems to be catered to, for, you know, demographically speaking, economically advantaged white women. And it's like, why why is so much wellness directed at that specific demographic? It's like, I've heard people say, well, because they can afford it and we're in a business and this is a capitalist, wellness is capitalist. And to your point, how do we start to unravel I guess this sort of accepted notion that wellness has to be this expensive thing. It just seems like it is in many cases and make it more accessible and affordable. But also some people have a resistance to like, oh, I'm going to take these herbs. Like what's this going to do for my brain? I just, I'm wondering what, what your thoughts are on shifting that, not only the narrative, but the course of seemingly most of the industry.
1: Yeah, I've thought a lot about this. I'm not, it's, it's big, massive solution, but I think it's going to be structural changes to really, really help people across the board. One would be to change the system to Medicare for All, and then to add alternative modalities into that bigger system. Now, is that going to happen in this country? Who knows? But like that would be the solution to add the wellness modality ability through Medicare for All so that, you know everybody could afford to do that type of therapies if they want. Otherwise you still have, you know, even with rehabs or, you know, mental health, that's why everybody's on, on medication. It's like, because that's the, what the, that's what the um, healthcare providers will, health insurance will pay for medication, but they won't pay for supplements. Right. So like, even when I was like, okay, let's get my supplements into the rehab centers that were forward thinking, they're like, yeah, but we're not going to buy these supplements. And, the health insurance will pay for you know the ssris or the or and and so it's a big big structural change that needs to happen if you're going to like uh, tackle something so big like that the other thing that you can do are little different things here and there so for example during when covid started i had a lot of wellness practitioners that couldn't practice their own, like, you know, sound bath yoga teachers and like people that did sound baths and stuff like that, that used our product. And so I came up with something called the mood support fund. And what that is, is that when you go to buy something on Vary, you can actually donate 15 to $30 to the mood support fund. You get a discount code for, for your next purchase. And whoever puts money in that fund, that goes into a central fund at Vary. And then those people that can't afford, couldn't afford the supplements during COVID, I just sent it to them. Like if they would just send me a message, I mean, I'm small enough that they would just send me a message and and they were out of work. And I'd be like, here's your pink cloud, like go for it. And other people that did have the money were paying for that. So I think that's another solution we can do, like one for ones, like each one of us. And I'm kind of riffing now on ideations, but like, you know, for every one, you know, consultation I do, I'll do one for someone that needs it, that, that can't afford it. Like, I think that's the only other solution is, is the, the, have, the haves should be supporting the have nots across the board in this country, period. And I think we could do it on a small level with each one of our wellness practitioners, we can each do that. I think that would be a really good solution.
2: Yeah. Cause the, the thing that I, that I get concerned with is that, you know, as an industry that wellness is sort of catering mostly just to people who are in this income bracket or even not just income, it's also an awareness thing. I think, you know, it's, it's offering, natural alternatives in a way that's sort of approachable, you know, and, and, and I think this comes down to education too, because if you talk to a neurotransmitter function to maybe, you know, the, the, the average American, I don't know this, this is just totally anecdotal, you know, they may not have a basic understanding of, of neurobiology or what neurotransmitters even are. And to, to go back to the supplements, I I'm curious with your formulation, how you put these together. What was your thought process, Rinda, in, you know, were you focusing on this particular blend of herbs and vitamins and natural ingredients are going to help this one particular neurotransmitter? Like, what was your thought process and how did you begin to formulate and why did you formulate your products the way that you did?
1: Yeah, I definitely was looking to replace pharmaceuticals, to be quite frank. I'm not really, I don't market it that way. I don't sell it that way. It's like not FDA compliant to say that, but that's basically what I was going to try and do. And how I did that is I, I chose the neurotransmitters that I had studied that I knew had the most effect on mood, serotonin, dopamine, and GABA specifically to start with. And I sought out formulations uh, with the best backed science like my stuff is kind of like the best in science combined with homeo you know i mean remedies that are like wisdom they're like the wisdom traditions like everybody knows saint john's war works for depression like it's been studied but it's also a wisdom tradition In herbology. So, like combining those two spaces, and I sat about trying to specifically work with those three neurotransmitters to start. And my dopamine, which is an herb called meconopuriense, is the one that I specifically use to help me get off Welbutrin. Like, I so Welbutrin works, Welbutrin is an SNRI, so it works on dopamine and serotonin, and that's why it worked for me. And so, I was looking to how do I replace that sort of serotonin I mean, that dopamine in my body. And I found, you know, tyrosine does it, but it didn't do it fast enough for me, and the mucona did. So I basically went about setting about trying to do those three things, so anxiety, depression and two forms of depression. And then as I was developing it, I realized a lot of people have sleep issues. So I added a sleep formula and then I added the L-glutamine to help with hypoglycemia and alcohol and sugar cravings because that's another form of, of like, you know, get you off balance. So I launched with five formulas that I thought would like stopgap the most important things for mental health, sleep, uh, depression, and anxiety. And now what I do with those formulas is I combined combinations of the two different bottles of things to address certain things as well. So example, my the Anxiety No More duo is Pink Cloud, which works on serotonin, and Serenity, which works on GABA. And those two together are like the best for anxiety. Whereas like Pink Cloud and Rest Well, which is a sleep formula, they work really good for long term insomnia because Pink Cloud works on the serotonin levels and serotonin in your body converts to melatonin, and melatonin is what helps you sleep. But if you don't have enough serotonin in the first place, melatonin won't even work for you. So I do the Insomnia No More Pack, which is the two formulas together. So that's kind of where I started with those. I worked with a US-based manufacturer that was very versed in manufacturing and they they do make supplements for other companies. So I trust them. They, you know, non-GMO and and all, you know, quality sourcing made here. And yeah, that was my methodology there. And it all went back to... Basically, the beginnings of those the what I talked about before is me studying and being a sponge, you know, through all the all the books of Julia Ross and all the amino acid therapy stuff, and like really understanding the neurochemistry of the body and the and the gut and how these these neurotransmitters are made.
0: Thank you for that, Rinda, because I was on Wellbutrin for a short period of time. I don't remember exactly for how long, but I took that when I was in college. I went to see a psychiatrist because I was struggling with a number of things. Initially, I think I was referred to the psychiatrist to support me with my disordered eating. And then through our sessions together, I recognized that there was a lot of deeper things going on. And I remember that I was feeling very panicky. I was feeling what i perceived as depression at the time it was my first year of college and i just felt out of control with my emotions and I, I i really felt like i was going through suffering for the first major time and looking back like i wonder was that just me kind of coming to terms with myself for the first time and is that like such a common experience that freshmen in college have I don't know if I needed to go on medication, but but I tried it. And I I don't really remember what it was like. And so I went through this phase of feeling like, do I really even need to take this? And I didn't know what else to do because my psychiatrist, I don't think she was pushing it on me by any means. She was really supportive. I think I was really just looking for a quick fix because I was in like this panicked mode of suffering. And I distinctly remember making the switch from Welbutrin to St. John's wort, which was the only thing that I knew of at the time. And it was kind of trendy. I remember my dad was experimenting with it too. And it was like, I just need to try something else because I don't want to be on this medication. I don't remember if it was that I was experiencing any symptoms of Welbutrin. I think it was just this like inner knowing that I didn't want to be on a medication. I wanted to find a natural path. And I'm really grateful that you're sharing this story because even just hearing that someone else is on Wellbutrin and knows what that experience was like, and then that you developed this product out of that experience and the desire to help people in a more holistic way is really wonderful. And I wish that I had, known that there were more options out there when I was taking it.
1: Yeah. Thank you. I think that's the goal here for me. You know, I think the goal is to, we we have a lot of customers that are choosing to try our supplements first. And again, it's very different. Like, you know, depression and anxiety are, and uh, you know, there's varying levels of it. Of course, I would recommend everybody if they're, you know, If they're to a point where they need help, like they're suicidal, they have suicidal ideation or, you know, they've been down in the dumps for ages, definitely seek help and guidance. And but yes, I think as a society, we're over medicated and we're. Underinformed. So like, I don't think, I think the psychiatrists and the doctors are well-meaning, but they don't even understand like that you can maybe, you might have had low vitamin D at the same time. You might have had, you might have just needed St. John's Wort and some other things. You might've needed some little tweaks in what you were eating. You know, there's, There needs to be a way that, that we're educating the educator, the medical profession at some point too, of like, look, there's all these other things that can cause depression. You don't need to just throw someone on a, on a antidepressant until you really explore all those other options. And then, you know, I do have, we do have a lot of people that with their doctors, of course, with their permission, they're coming off medication and they're choosing to use very products to come off the medication and then maintain so that they don't crash. Um, I've done that. I have a handful of naturopathic doctors that are now using the products that instead, you know, so that people want to use them instead of medication. And then I have people that's like, have come to me and said, oh, my doctor wants to put me on Prozac, but I don't want to go on Prozac. And what do you have? And that's kind of how Pink Cloud came about is I actually worked with someone that was having that exact experience and so I developed pink cloud for him basically and he's still on it 3 3 years later and he it's like maintained him and he doesn't have to go on SSRIs now I'm not anti medication I think if you need medication take it it's it can be life-saving but again I think we're over medicated and under informed about the risks
2: yeah I want to leave the listener with some some takeaways around nutrition rinda and you mentioned gut health, and I'm, I'm curious, aside from or in addition to whatever a person's particular protocol is, besides pharmaceuticals or the holistic supplements that you have with your company, what are some foods or adjustments that you think people could add into or eat more of from a food or nutrition perspective, again, aside from supplements and pharmaceuticals that you have seen beneficial for your clients and yourself? What are some things that people could eat And also, you know, talk a little bit about that connection between gut health and brain health.
1: Right. So a large percentage of your serotonin is created in your gut. So if your gut isn't healthy, you have an issue there. You can also have gut permeability. I don't like to say leaky gut, but that's what they call it. So if that's the case, you know, your body isn't absorbing all the nutrients. So you have to sort of take a look at that. Food is tricky, Jason, because sometimes what you think is super hel- healthy for one person is not healthy for another. In general, I would say, you know, lots of fresh fruits and vegetables. I do all of, a lot of olive oil. I, you know, of course, avoid avoid processed sugars, including like processed white flour and glutens and oh, those type of things. If you are gluten intolerant, some people are, some people aren't, you can sort of do food sensitivity tests if you have the money, which, you know, those are really expensive. So once again, you're in a position where, well, you know, eat a bunch of gluten for three days and then don't and see how it feels. Like, you know, I know that some people, sugar, for example, for me, if I sort of binge on sugar for three or four days, boy, do I start feeling really bad. So I would say the best thing to do there is to start creating a mood food journal. That's the least expensive way so that you're not spending a good dollars on food testing, create a mood food journal and just take note as if you eat certain things and you start feeling bad, what happens, you know? So anyway, I do a lot of olive oil. I do right now. I'm I'm actually on pretty strict because I found out I was uh, allergic to a few things or had food sensitivities to a few things. So again, that food mood journal is really important because it, once you can think something's really helpful for you, like I'm not supposed to eat almonds right now, and those are super healthy for you, but they were causing issues. So just have to be mindful about food, and and I would also say like. Any extreme diet, I mean, I prefer a vegan lifestyle. I like cheese every once in a while, but any extreme diet, just take a watch out for that to, you know, keto versus this versus that. And I'm really a proponent for a balanced diet and and to basically eat a rainbow every day (laughs) because I figure if you eat all the colors in the rainbow every day, you're going to get better off getting more nutrients that you really need. So that's my big food speech there
0: organic when you can of course I love that Rinda and when you were saying that about the rainbow at first I thought you were gonna say that maybe if you eat all the colors of the rainbow you'll you'll feel more happiness like the rainbow represents which I think can also be true that is true <laughs> and you know I'm actually sensitive to almonds too and the way that I found that out was through a little bit of food journaling I I did an elimination diet. And I was so surprised when I realized how almonds were having an effect on me. I found the same thing out through gluten and soy. And it was just the process of removing a food and then seeing if I felt better. And there were so many surprises for me because I had taken a test years ago that claimed I wasn't allergic to anything. And I don't think I am allergic. I think I'm sensitive. And it was just that process of experimenting. I'm also really glad that you brought that up. Because one thing I'm working on more, which Jason kind of alluded to earlier, is making health and well-being more accessible. Because so much of it is price. And that's been a big theme of this episode. And I I just want to emphasize that a bit more, that including options for people that don't have the money or don't want to spend the money on some of these things, either yet or ever, is so important because we don't want to leave anyone out. In fact, I saw a really enlightening video on this on TikTok yesterday specifically addressing the um, environmental movement and how a lot of the, quote, quick fixes out there are related to these high-priced products. Like, oh, instead of using regular toothpaste in a plastic tub, you should use these tablets that you can chew on. And it sounds like a great idea, but some of those products are really high-priced. And so we can't judge somebody for using a a less eco-friendly product if we don't know the full reason that they're using it, like it could be a a knowledge issue because not everybody has access to the resources to learn or not everybody feels comfortable learning because their history didn't support them in, in getting an education. And not everybody wants to go out and spend the money or, or is ready to make that big transition. And it's just an incredibly important thing to remember for all of us, when we're approaching somebody with a suggestion to change, how can we make it easy for them? How can we make it accessible for them so that they're able to do it in a, in a way that complements the resources that they have at the time?
1: Yeah, 100%. I mean, I've had people... You know, so it was like, oh, just go get acupuncture. I'm like, that's fine. Especially all my fancy musician friends that have a lot of money. I'm like, that's nice. (laughs) Are you going to pay for that?
0: Luckily, it's funny you say that too, because I remember actually as part of my food journey, I I had just severe health challenges that no doctor could help me pinpoint. I mean, I spent years going to doctors and taking tests and trying different medication. And one of the things I tried was acupuncture. I will say I found a way to do it low cost. I, I went to an acupuncture clinic and it was really affordable. So I got very good at finding... Inexpensive ways to figure these things out too and and so if you 're willing to go check things out, find low cost options, I mean you can stumble across products like your own, Rinda that offer either things for free because of somebody your financial situation or at a lower cost that is more accessible and i'm so grateful that people like you offer that and thank you so much for coming on this show to talk about it today because you know, Jason introduced me to your products and I've always just got such a great feeling about them. And now that I've gotten to know you and your story and and what you're offering, I I just feel just incredibly happy that that you and your products exist. So thank you.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I Thank you. I'm inspired to keep going every day because somebody sends me a message or you know, uh, posts on social media, like the good parts of those social media posts where they thank me for, you know, for the products. I had a, I had a mom that messaged me privately last year that, that was like, I just wanted you to know that my daughter takes your serenity product. And now she doesn't, I guess it was a year before because they were all in school, but it's just now she doesn't get anxiety before cheer practice. And I'm like, that's life-changing, you know, So I'm honored that people that it's it's helping people in a way that is meaningful. And by the way, I did also go to the acupuncture school for less expensive. So yeah, you can find stuff out there that's inexpensive.
2: Well, speaking of resources, dear listener, we are going to link to all of the resources we mentioned here in this episode with Rinda, including, of course her incredible company, Very Every Day, and all of the great formulas she mentioned to assist with your neurotransmitter function and whatever holistic mental wellness routine, or even if you don't have one, this woman and her knowledge, obviously that she shared in this episode is a great place to start. So we're going to link to that website. We're gonna link to all of Rinda's social media handles, her website, if you want to contact her directly and dig in even deeper. And there is one thing that I wanna bring up at the tail end of this episode, Rinda, and Whitney, this is for you too. So we mentioned South by Southwest, which I had the great pleasure of being invited by you, Rinda, to speak on a panel about holistic mental health solutions for touring musicians, one of the highlights of my career. And when we were there, you showed me a video and you told me about this incredible event that you had orchestrated, a live mashup concert with the Afghan Whigs and Usher. And Whitney, I don't know if I told you about this, but we have an inside joke, Rinda, about how Usher is sort of our spirit animal with our business. There's more to tell with that. But the fact that you had this experience of mashing up one of the greatest indie bands and one of the greatest R&B singers together. And I don't know if I showed you this, Whitney, but if I haven't, I'm going to email you the link. It was one of the dopest, most amazing mashups I've ever seen. So kudos to that, Rinda, and your brilliance. Because it was so incredible.
1: <laughs> I am going to, I cannot take credit for that. I was absolutely there and I will share my experience with you. That was Andy Cohn was the head of Fader, the magazine called Fader. And Andy is a huge Afghan Whigs fan and Fader Fort every year had Fader Fort, Converse Fader Fort. And that was actually Andy's idea. And it was so incredible to be a part of, though, I, you know, I've worked with the Afghan Wigs now for 10 years, uh, nine years, and um, along with a ton of other artists. But that was an incredible experience. And I will share with you, since you're such great Usher fans, is I was one of the few people that was lucky enough to go to the rehearsal for that. And so it's basically just me and and some stage hands and, and roadies and Afghan wigs on the stage and Usher uh, walks on stage and he's got no audience except for me. So he literally sang the entire song straight to me, like dancing and just eyeballing me the whole time because I was the only girl in the audience. (laughs) It was really, it was really incredible. Um, He's amazing, and then a couple months later he um appeared at uh, one of the Afghan Whigs show in New York, and I ended up like you know making sure he got to his seat and everything like that. He's a really kind, kind person, and he actually influenced the Afghan Whigs they had gotten back together just kind of as a reunion a mini reunion tour, but once they did that mashup they they made a choice to make a new record, and they've been they're now on their third new record so Yeah, that's the story. I have other ideas that were all mine that I'll own, but that one I won't.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I feel like we could do a sub episode again. Just I've been the recipient of so many of your mind blowing stories over the years, Rinda, that I feel like we could fill easily like a three hour episode aside from that. But we are at uh, the conclusion of this one, Rinda. and, And I just am so grateful for your knowledge, your heart, your wisdom, your contribution to helping people feel better every day. And you're just an absolute blessing. It's just been such a a pleasure to reconnect and have you on the podcast. Thanks for being here with us.
1: Thank you so, so, so much for having me. It was my pleasure.